Chapter Seven of the Zeitgeist. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Greg Giordano. The Zeitgeist by Lily Dugall. Chapter Seven. Anne Markham's thoughts of Bart that day were chiefly wondering thoughts. She tried to think scornfully of his refusal to help her. Theoretically, she derided the religion that produced the refusal, but in the bottom of her heart she looked at it with a wonder that it was akin to admiration. Then there was a question whether he would remain fixed in his resolution. If this man did not love her, then Anne's confidence failed her in respect to her judgment of what was or was not for though she had regarded him always as a person of not much strength or importance not independent enough to be anything more than the creature of the woman whom he desired to marry yet curiously enough she had believed that his love for her had a strength that would die hard she did not stop to ask herself how it could be that a weak man could love her strongly love in any constant impermanent sense of the word was an almost unknown quality among her companions and yet she had attributed it to bart well his refusal of last night proved that she had been mistaken that was all but possibly the leaven of her proposal would work and he would repent and come back to her the fact that he had evidently not betrayed her to the detective gave her hope of this her thoughts about toyner were only subordinate to the question how she was to rescue her father with the light and strength of the morning hope and other possibilities of eluding bart even if he remained firm came back to her she would at least work on if she was baffled in the end it would be time enough to despair her sister was not her confidant she was her tool Anne waited until the shadow of the pear-tree, which with ripening fruit overhung the gable of their house, stretched itself far down the bit of weedy grass that sloped to the river. The grass-plot was wholly untended, but nature had embroidered it with flowers and ferns. Anne sat sewing by the table on which she kept her supply of beer. She could not afford to lose her sails to-day although she knew bitterly that most of those who turned in for a drink did so out of prying curiosity even christa not very quick of feeling had felt this and had retired to lounge on the bed in the inner room with a paper novel christa usually spent her afternoon in preparing some cheap finery to wear in the cool of the evening but she felt the family disgrace and anne's severity and was disheartened as Anne bided her time, and considered her own occupation, and Christa's, she marveled at the audacity of the promise which she had offered to give Bart. Yet so awful was the question at stake that her only wish was that he had accepted it. At four o'clock in the afternoon she roused Christa, and apportioned a certain bit of work to her. There was a young man in Fentown, called David Brown, a comely young fellow, belonging to one of the richer families of the place he was good-natured and an athlete 
he had of late fallen into the habit of dropping in frequently to drink Anne's beer. She felt no doubt that Christa was his attraction. Some weeks before he had boasted that he had found the bed of a creek, which made its way through the drowned forest, and that by it he had paddled his canoe through the marsh that lay to the north of the lake. He had also boasted that he had a secret way of finding the creek again. Upon considering his character, Anne believed that although the statement was given boastfully, it was true. Brown had a trace of Indian blood in him, and possessed the faculties of keen observation and good memory. It was by the help of this secret that she had hoped to extricate her father herself. There was still a chance that she might be able to use it. Some men think the world and all of a woman, if they can only get into the notion that she is ill-used. David may be more sweet on you than ever, said Anne to Christa. Put on your white frock. It's a little must, so it won't look as if you were trying to be fine. Don't put on any sash, but do your hair neatly. She will look taking enough, thought Anne to herself. She did not despise herself for the stratagem. It was part of the hard, practical game that she had played all her life. For that matter, she was not conscious of loving Christa any more than she was conscious of loving her father. It was merely her will that they should have the utmost advantage in life that she could obtain for them. Nothing short of a moral revolution could have changed this determination in her. When Christa had performed her toilet, obeying Anne from mere habit, Anne drilled her in the thing she was to do. Brown would of course suspect what this information was to be used for. Christa was to coax him to promise secrecy. Anne went over the details of the plan again and again, until she was quite sure that the shallow, forgetful child understood the importance of her mission. Christa sat with her elbows on the table and cried a little. Her fair hair was curled low over her eyes. The coarse white dress hung limp but soft, leaving her neck bare. With all her motions her head nodded on her slender, graceful neck, like a flower which bows on its stalk. Before this disaster Christa had spent her life laughing. That had been more becoming to her than sullenness and tears. For all that, Anne was not sorry that Christa's eyelids should be red when David Brown was seen slowly lounging toward the window. He had not been able to see them the day before. It was apparent from his air that he thought it was not quite the respectable thing to do today. He tried to approach the house with a nonchalant, happened-by-chance air, so that if anyone saw him they would suppose his stopping merely accidental. Anne poured out his beer. Christa looked at him with eyes full of reproach. Then she got up and went away to the doorstep and stood looking out. To the surprise of both of them, David did not follow her. He stood still near Anne. "'It's hard on Christa,' said Anne with a sigh. "'She has been crying all day. Every one will desert us now, and we shall have to live alone without friends.' "'Oh, no,' abruptly. "'Nobody blames you. I don't mind for myself so much. I don't care so much about what people think.' Or how they treat me. She lifted her head proudly as she spoke. But, with pathos, it's hard on Christa. 
no you never think of yourself do you david giggled a little as he said it betraying that he felt his words to be unusually personal anne wondered for a minute what could be the cause of this giggle and then she returned to the subject of christa's suffering look here he interrupted if there's any little thing i can do to help you like lending you money if you're left hard up or anything of that sort you know he was blushing furiously now it's for you i'd do it he blurted out i don't care about christa the silly fellow thought anne she was six years older than he and she felt herself to be twenty years older she entirely scorned his admiration in its young folly but she did not hesitate a moment to make use of it all her life had been a long training in that thrift which utilized everything for family gain she was a thorough woman of society this girl who sat in her backwoods cottage selling beer she looked at the boy and a sudden glow of sensibility appeared in her face oh david she said i thought it was christa but it isn't christa he stammered grinning he was hugely pleased with the idea that she had accepted his declaration of courtship half an hour later and anne had the secret of the new track through the north of the drowned forest and brown had the wit not to ask her what she wanted to do with it he had done more he had offered to row her boat for her but this anne had refused it was a curious thing this refusal it arose purely from principle on her part she had come to the limit which the average mind sets to the evil it will commit she deceived and cajoled the boy without scruple but she did not allow him to break the law she remembered that he had parents who valued his good name more than he had as yet learned to value it he was young he was in her power and she declined his further help christa had wandered down the grass to the riverside and stood there pouting meanwhile End of chapter seven recording by greg giordano newport ritchie florida